Hello, and welcome to another episode of Conversations in Cocoa. I'm Lauren Heineck, the host and producer of this podcast. This series stems from over six years of industry work, conversations with peers, collaborators, and mentors. You can find more of my writings and stay updated to future podcasts at laurenontheweekend.substack.com. That's WKND, as well as find me on Twitter at Weekend Chocolate and Instagram Lauren on the Weekend. If you're in a position to support these podcasts and find this content useful, please think about becoming an annual subscriber. Thanks again for your support. I really appreciate you. Today, in conversation with Dr. Dominic A. Martin and Anja Haranoni Andri. Ni Aina Rakotomalala. So just a quick place to start would be a short introduction to the both of you. Very grateful that you're here. I know you're dialing in from two various locations in the world, and we're going to talk about a specific ingredient, vanilla, that has undoubtedly impacted the world. Dominic, would you start, please? Yes. My name is Dominic Martin. I'm an ecologist and geographer by training. And over the last year, I did my PhD on a project at the University of Göttingen on vanilla agroforestry and vanilla more generally in northeastern Madagascar. Uh, since the beginning of this year, I'm working as a postdoctoral researcher at the Department of Geography at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. Thank you. And I should say, I reached out to Dominic on Twitter and he was so communicative and he had expressed the desire to bring along a colleague. And I said, that's an awesome idea. So I'm thrilled that both of you could be here. With that, Andre, would we be able to hear from you, please? My name is Andre and uh, I'm a PhD student from the University of Antananarivo uh, in Madagascar. In my research project, I'm assessing the effect of land use change on biodiversity, especially in the northeastern of Madagascar. And there specifically, I'm assessing the value of vanilla agroforest for biodiversity conservation. And I compare the vanilla agroforest with other land use types, such as forest fragment or fallowlands, and also rice paddies. Thank you for that introduction. You know, I couldn't resist the idea that vanilla be a topic for us to discuss today. Of course, when we enter into the world of cacao, there are some that might find aversion to the idea of adding vanilla to their chocolate bars because it would mask, therefore, the underlying flavors of chocolate. And historically, the mass producers have used vanilla, overriding some of the defects that they might find in their cocoa. But they come from some of the same areas in the world. And those of us who might have experienced the specialty cacao of Northwestern Madagascar are really just amazed at the the flavor potential that these bright red citrusy notes come through. And I found it really interesting that we might be able to see the other side of the island, the Northeastern side, where both of these colleagues have been focusing on their research with the production of vanilla, the farmers, and how that is of course impacted through the land management and land use. And that's where I wanted to start because we talk a lot about the popularity of agroforestry as a term and how that might be applied to, of course, many different crops, many different commodities. But I don't know much further 
of what that actually could entail. I would just love to start from a place of knowing the difference, if there is, between land use and land management. You're clearly starting with the tough questions. Land use describes kind of what is being done there. So typically referring to different crop um, regimes that are planted or agroforestry, for example, can be referred to as a land use. And maybe land management would be a bit more specific, you know, what kind of practices are then done within these crops, for example, um, on the use of fertilizers or thinking about other land uses, maybe the type of tilling that is done or something like that. So really kind of the day-to-day -day management of it. Okay. And when we're looking at both of these crops, I think we're looking at things that are highly revered, also highly misunderstood, that involve intensive labor and also fluctuate according to global demand, much more so on the side of vanilla. We're going to dive into that price volatility a bit later on in the episode. But I think what's also quite interesting is that it's widely emulated, that there's this desire to copy the flavor. Well, I'll just leave it as that. I'm a bit curious if we could talk about the, the farmers in the region, like to understand what are the day-to-day -day activities of the Saba region, and maybe even more like a bit specific about what type of land that is, what forests are at play there. For any of these questions, either of you feel free to chime in. I don't know if I have specific ones for either, but I know that you'll, you'll both be able to speak from your expertise. Uh, so the northeastern of Madagascar is typically tropical, humid rainforest in general. So there, the climate is mostly like warm and also humid. There are some rainfall and also um, dry season there, which also allows farmers to farm diverse crops. We have tropical rainforests, correct? What are like the top five crops of the region? If there is intercropping. The main agricultural practice in the region is the shifting cultivation. So farmers, they are growing rice through slash and burn. This cultivation is mainly used for subsistence. And the rice cultivation also, um, there are two types. So uh, there is the rain-fed rice, that is this hill rice cultivation uh, through slash and burn process, which consists on cutting down the forest and then burn the biomass and then they grow rice. When we want to frame this from an agroforestry perspective, what should we know? Are those things already in place? Is the system already functioning in an agroforestry system? Is there a need because of the global demand to shift to different versions of agriculture to have an understanding of where do we stand with the crop as it is today? Uh, maybe I can talk a little bit about the different kind of vanilla agroforestry um, we observed in the region. And this is really quite an, an interesting aspect because there's quite a lot of the agroforests are established on land that was used for shifting cultivation. So that form part of the cycle of burning and cultivating and then fallowing and then burning again and, and cultivating. That land is kind of taken out of that cycle and then the vanilla is planted on this like fallow land and really allows for an agroforest to regenerate, for the trees to grow that then provide shade for the vanilla plants. 
That's roughly 70% of the agroforests in the region. But then in contrast, there are also agroforests that are established directly inside forest. So in those cases, the understory is removed, the shrubs are removed, maybe certain trees are removed, but then the vanilla is kind of planted directly under these remnant forest trees. So these are kind of two different ways of establishing an agroforest. And this comparison actually was one of the main foci of our work. And I'll go even a step backwards in this. To understand a little bit further about the species, are there different varietals? I think we're aware of the origin in Central America, but what specifically grows in Madagascar at this point? And why might there be a confusion between what is bourbon vanilla, Madagascar vanilla? How would you differentiate between those? From my personal knowledge, actually, the main vanilla that is grown in Madagascar is the Bourbon vanilla, the vanilla planifolia. Probably safe to assume that of the 70,000 farmers in the Saba region, they are all growing this bourbon varietal? Yes, I would say so. Sometimes you see or farmers presented to us as like a speciality that they have these few plants that were. Tahiti vanilla or vanille Mexique, a variety which was called Mexican vanilla. But that was really kind of shown to us rather as an odd thing they also have within their agroforest rather than the thing they make money with. Yeah, I would also say vanilla planifolia. I would love to have an understanding of how vanilla maybe arrived to Madagascar. We're going to talk about these boom and bust peaks that the market has been affected by. But it's always interesting to me in the crops that are associated with particular regions or how regions of the world become famous because of the growth or such activity, but that A, it's not endemic to that region and B, that they were selling this, exporting this and being known for this culturally before it even increased to such high prices. So what led the region or to these farmer communities to focus on this crop? I can get started on this. What's quite interesting is that the French colonial power, they introduced different crops, different cash crops to be farmed by the farmers in different regions. So they decided that the Northwest, which you already mentioned, would be a a region for cacao growing. The Northeast, the Sava region was the vanilla region. One region further south along the east coast, it's called Anolan Girofo. Girofo is the word for um, cloves, so that the name cloves even in part of the region's name. That was the clove region, obviously, and the coffee then even further south. It was really kind of decided what would be or which kind of value chain would be established where. And today, farmers are allowed to grow whatever they want, wherever they are in the country. But of course, there's also kind of lock-ins in terms of knowledge, which crops farmers know how to farm. And of course, it also links to the climate, that the climate in the Northeast is particularly suitable for for vanilla. And the Northwest seems to be also a good place for the cacao. Are you seeing that there is a change taking place, whether this might be related to the climate crisis, or this might be related to, again, as we mentioned, that demand I would love to be able to walk away from today's episode as well with kind of furthering our concept of why is vanilla important at this very moment? And obviously 
the farmers are in the position of benefiting, but I think they also have a lot of vulnerabilities and the cultural or the ecological changes that are to come or are currently being presented there at this time. Yes, some of the changes that are, are quite obvious is that under the high prices that were prevalent in the last years, as we will talk later on, this has changed now, but farms really aspired to expand their agroforest, their land under vanilla cultivation, or also to intensify agroforests they already had, so to plant more densely, for example, the vanilla within an existing agroforest. And this, of course, sparks two possible conflicts. Not one conflict is when these vanilla agroforests are expanded inside forest. This can really have um, negative um, effects for biodiversity and ecosystem services, which we documented for several taxa and for, for multiple ecosystem services. But then also when the vanilla agroforestry is expanded on fallow land, which is part of the shifting cultivation cycle, then there could be conflicts with food security because the hill rise is really um, key for subsistence for many farmers. So if that land would be replaced with vanilla, this could potentially pose a problem. But in that respect, what's quite interesting is that the vanilla agroforestry, it's so labor intensive that it really kind of absorbs lots of labor of, on relatively little land. So typically a household can not manage more than maybe half a hectare or so of agroforestry. And also many of the existing agroforests have actually quite a lot of intensification potential, um, especially with planting the vanilla more densely to increase yields. So it's a relatively low space consuming crop compared to others. What is the cycle of the crop? How many opportunities a year might they be able to sell their harvest? And are they responsible for curing it themselves or what maybe some of those aspects of the trading system might be? Yeah, so um, the vanilla is harvested only one time a year. So it has like a long process actually. For example, this process started when the vanilla plants are flowering. So that's about October, November, December. Potentially there are some flowers still early January. Once this stage is finished, so it might take until June, July, August, that the vanilla beans get to ripen stage and the farmer could harvest like around August. What I can tell you now is I have three vanilla packages with me now from various sources. When I buy vanilla in the store, I know that I'm getting a beautiful brown aromatic bean pod and that the price is very wildly and the stickers also vary between one that says that it is completely organic one that almost tells me nothing about it other than I need to keep it in a cool and dry space and another that is a very specific specialty directly traded vanilla bean as you both alluded to earlier there's this idea of vanilla being so labor-intensive that it requires so much effort from the people that grow it. And of course, we might be asking, why do they grow it? What is the benefit for them? So in asking these questions, I, I think what I'm getting at is, can you help us understand the complexity of it arriving to me? Yes, I think it's really a lot of work from the very beginning to the very end. I think one thing is that 
you know, it takes three years between planting of the vanilla vine and the, the first flowers, um, typically sometimes even longer. Then it's a lot of work to look after it, to, to do the weeding, to do the hand pollination later on. Also, the lots of the vanilla vines actually don't have flowers and don't have pots every year. So the yields are really hard to, to get and, and, and it requires lots of work to get there. But then also the whole processing later on is a lot of work from the curing and the drying. That's all quite, quite labor intensive. But when the prices were so high in the last years, this was really kind of more than paid back with the high price. And farmers who were well producing agroforests could really have a, a decent income and, and earn more than any other rural Malagasy farmers. So that was really a, a high income opportunity. But now with the prices going down again, this of course puts these profits in question and also a lot of the regional development, which was really kind of, uh, at least on the economic side, kind of taking off during these high prices is really coming to an end now. And what distinguishes a family's plot of land from being a well agroforestry system? Is it already happening that way? Is this a wild area that they walk into, plant the vanilla, and it, as a vine, goes up the trees naturally? What sort of management and maintenance must be required in these areas? The wild yielding vanilla agroforest, they're really every plant grows there because the farmers wanted to grow there because everything is managed everything is kind of thought through but and then, then there are several variables that farmers may be able to influence to optimize yields we found for example which makes sense that the more densely it's planted the higher the yields typically are on a, on a per area basis but also and to have longer veins where which which like so and maybe briefly explain how it's actually planted. It's like a, a vein that would typically kind of climb up a tree and then flower in the canopy. And of course, it's really unhandy if you have to flower up in the canopy. So what farmers do is they kind of loop it up and down on so-called tutor or support trees that are typically alive little shrubs, which are like two meters high or so, one meter 50. And then you can hang up the, the vein up and down, up and down, and you get thousands of meters of vein within one kind of accessible thing. The really the well-managed ones have of many meters of, of liana or sometimes also really old plants that yield well. And then there's other places where, where vanilla is kind of, for example, it can be put in a forest, kind of claim that piece of land. So that's, that's one way to communicate to people that this piece of land is already designated for vanilla agroforestry, but it's not really an agroforest yet. It's still a forest with some vanilla in. So that's actually a really interesting aspect. I'm just imagining these, these lush, beautiful locations with climbing orchids, for lack of a better term, because I, I know they're in the family and I find them so gorgeous. And of course, we had mentioned that part of that labor is the hand pollination that goes into it, having the agricultural intelligence to understand at what point it needs to be pollinated. And to manage that, regardless of the price of the market, that impact, that reliance on farmers' knowledge is needed, is required. I would think like a lot of other commodities, there might be a general consensus, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, or what needs to be expounded upon, that farmers are not getting paid enough. But is that true in the case of vanilla, or have we just seen such instability 
I mean, where might we go? Is it certifications that would allow for further stability? Is it to create regulations that keep a certain price point? Or what might be needed to correct the erratic market? I think that the problem is really when the prices are on the lowest, they are clearly not enough. Of course, it depends a bit how it's calculated. If you calculate a minimum necessary price kind of from the living costs or kind of from the amount of work that goes in, but maybe with prices of around 35 euros a kilo, that would actually be a, a, fair, a fair price that would actually be enough to make a living in the region. This is, of course, prices for green vanilla. The black vanilla, which is five times lighter, would then be, of course, much more expensive also with such prices. But um, I mean, at the moment, the prices are, correct me if I'm wrong, Andre, around 20 euros per kilo grain. So that's clearly too little. The really high prices that were around before, traders actually said this is really unsustainable. We can't sustain it on the long run because also at some point, of course, the demand will crash. And one option, which also um, colleagues of ours from a different research project at the University of Bern, are kind of testing or, or, or researching would be um, farmers cooperatives that would try to balance the price over the long term so that the farmers would always get the same amount of money in low price years they would be getting a surplus but then in the high price year that money would be taken off and saved for the low price years but of course it's very difficult to implement because of course it's, it's <laughs> attractive to join when the prices are low and unattractive to be part of it when the prices are high. So there's also this notion that, you know, when the prices are high, people just use that time to invest good investments, for example, into new housing or in a solar panel that really has long-term effect. These things would be impossible to afford under low prices. You can still use it when the prices are low, if that makes sense. Great. We often read headlines involving vanilla or cacao and how they might be farmed or the prices they might be receiving at that very moment and therefore what farmers should do, what consumers should do. Some of it is sensationalized. And I'm just curious maybe what some topics are that are commonly brought up in vanilla that are a little embellished or exaggerated. Yes, I can get started. One thing that is always, of course, very, very attractive for the media is this topic of, of vanilla theft. Vanilla theft is really a problem, actually from the fields. So in that case, the, the green vanilla pods are directly stolen from the plants, but also later on. So once it's harvested, people are scared it's uh, stolen from their houses. People hide it very well. Some people have like houses with double walls, for example, to hide it. It is really a, a big problem locally, um, especially when the price is so high. You could imagine that now that the, the lower price, of course, it's much less attractive to be a, a vanilla thief. But this is also really fueled by vanilla being the thing to make money with locally, especially in the villages. And those who have a lot of vanilla are the rich people and those who have no vanilla fields or very little or badly yielding ones. Those are the, the ones who are less well off. And of course, this is really fueling this, this issue of theft. And that is in the media, maybe sometimes exaggerated. I once read the headline in a, in a German online portal, which said like, oh, the farmers don't like vanilla anymore. They don't want to farm it anymore. This was under the high prices and because of the theft. And I was like, well, no, <laughs> I mean, it's just a good way to make money. So 
no one is like, oh, we stopped farming vanilla because of the theft, but everyone is worried about it. It has also implications for the farmers and for the work input because people kind of guard their vanilla staying on the fields. Andrea, I want to move back to you because you had mentioned something to me before that I think is really profound for the audience to have an understanding of, and that is Madagascar is diverse, not only in its ecology, but also in its peoples and in its culture. If you would just tell us, please, maybe about the area where you're from and how that differs drastically from this northeastern region where the vanilla growers are. Madagascar is culturally diverse and also like geographically diverse. In the region where I am from is um, on the highland and there we are growing like mainly rice. But in contrast, the northeastern of Madagascar, it has, I would say, more potential and more diverse also on growing crops. There, from the lowland to the mainland, there are different main crops cultivated. Vanilla is one uh, central cultivation practice, but also, for example, much more like inland in the Andaba region, they grow more rice compared to the other area near the coast, for example. I think it's also really interesting what kind of crop diversity is on this line in the agroforest, just because, as Andre said, the climate is suitable for so many different also kind of pantropically farmed crops that you find like lychee within these agroforests, lychee trees or coffee shrubs, cacao sometimes, avocado trees, pineapple. Even though the vanilla is a cash crop, so that's really not used locally at all. But within the cash crop agroforests, you find all these kind of subsistence crops and fruits, etc. It really has a value the land use, vanilla agroforestry has a value for subsistence as well. Great points. Thank you. Admittedly, as I said before, I don't know very much about agroforestry, but one of the questions you proposed to me to ask in this interview was to know if agroforestry is always a good idea. Yeah, I think agroforestry is a good idea in terms of practice, because first of all, it's one of the type of agricultural practices which offers a much diverse crop and also much more services for people. As an example, here we are talking about vanilla agroforests. They need shades to grow. Farmers, they need to keep like a big trees or some amount of trees to keep the shade which allows the vanilla to grow well. With these diverse trees in the plantation, farmers also could use them, such as like firewood, or some farmers even use wood from the vanilla agroforestry for construction, in terms of like house or even like small furniture that, that they need in their daily life. In these agroforest farmers, they can also grow other crops with the vanilla, such as pineapple. They even can plant fruit trees in their agroforest trees. We also have like a jackfruit, I would say. And they are really important for local people because they really enjoy eating them and kind of like part of the supplementary nutrition. This might be totally unrelated to the vanilla agroforestry systems, but I have to ask because I think another crop that has come into sort of a trend state at the moment is boabab. 
And I would love to know if that is relevant to the local community or another cash crop. The baobab trees in Madagascar, they are really growing in the western parts and um, in the southern parts, which are uh, much more dry than in the, the northeast. Baobab trees, they have these really large trunks. So that's really for to, to store the water during the dry season. So in the northeast, there are actually um, no baobab trees. But the products from baobab trees, which are also sold within Madagascar, and also for tourists, for example, as souvenirs, etc., these might have a potential to work as a, as a tree crop for local people in the Western part, where, for example, vanilla or coffee and cacao is just not viable. You can't farm it there. So it might be an, an option there. But I think to really farm it is tough because I guess I don't know how many years it takes until they have any fruits. But I could imagine you might have to wait 200 years to get your first baobab seed harvest. We don't have long enough. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think that's a really important mention, Andre, of the timber used for homes. I found that fact from the 2017 study on solar panels at 60% adaptation rate. Very interesting. And I don't know if that's related directly to our conversation today, but just thought that was something to highlight. Getting into the nuts and bolts of agroforestry. Now that I'm having this conversation with you, I'm understanding it a bit more of an umbrella term. And then underneath of it, there's many different varieties of how you might have an agroforestry system. You've been mentioning some of these methods. When I was going over the paper that you had been a part of, Dominic, land use history determines ecosystem services and conservation value in tropical agroforestry of June 2020, uh, I was struck to ask this question, which is how can inside forest growth contribute to a loss of higher diversity in tropical forests? It sounds kind of mind-blowing. How can it be? The paper is basically about that it matters where the agroforest is established. So in the context of northeastern Madagascar, as we talked before about that these can be established inside the forest or on this open fallow land, which was part of the shifting rice cultivation. These are the kind of two quietly fundamentally different um, kinds of, of establishing an agroforest. And imagine a, a tropical forest, the most biodiverse land we have on earth. And then, I mean, if you um, simplify that by taking out trees, by removing the understory and by replacing the variety of native shrubs and, and understory plants, if you replace that with, with an agroforestry crop, be it cacao or coffee or our case vanilla, then it's unsurprising that that leads to a loss of a lot of species that are, that are specialized on these tropical forests. So what our studies show in, in northeastern Madagascar is that especially endemic species suffer from any kind of forest conversion, but that there are actually some kind of open land species that come in when an agroforest is established. So in terms of total species richness, which you can find in these agroforest compared to the forest, it might be actually quite similar, but then there's a turnover so that you have fewer specialized endemics and more kind of generalists, open land species inside this agroforest. So that kind of highlights the importance to con conserve forests and also really shows that um, establishing agroforests inside forests can be, can be problematic. So similar to cacao, 
where their cases or is it currently the case that people have cut down all of the forests mm -hmm. to make way for vanilla planting? I mean, the case of vanilla, the immediate cutting down and then planting is not something we observed, um, but of course, it might be gradual um, change. So, I mean, Andre mentioned that people use the trees in the agroforest for construction, for timber. And of course, if you take all the trees out because you, you build a big new house, then you will not have an agroforest anymore, but just a, a vanilla plantation. And then there's really about the balance, not whether... I mean, ideally, the farmers would manage to replace the trees they cut with the regrowth of new trees. The question is a bit whether if all the cut trees are native, Madagascar endemic tree species, and the ones that they are replacing with are all pantropical, very common fruit trees, then for the conservation of local tree species, this could be problematic. But you might be able to sustain a lot of the function of these agroforests in terms of carbon storage, for example, but also replacing those with, with very useful fruit trees, for example, with an avocado tree might, of course, also be a, a benefit to the farmers. It's also very understandable that this turnover might happen. But there's always the question of the short term versus the long term. I mean, also with the forest derived agroforests, if the alternative is to cut down the forest completely, then, of course, putting the agroforest in is better. Yeah, it's always complex. Land use is always a complex topic. Oh, for sure. In the cases that come to mind or that I'm familiar with because of the relationship to cacao, it might be that it was pastured land for cattle or for other range species, and then they'll move to an agroforestry system to include cacao as the understory crop. Is that also the case with some of the forests in the northeastern region of Madagascar? Are they or were they? animal like land use specific yeah about like a land use for cattle so far in our study region i haven't really seen it quite often only in one district which is called andapa their cattle are much more common also and like a zebu and so on but when it's the time of um, let's say dry season those animals just like forage on the dried rice paddies and so on. There are also some kind of like livestock that farmers also keep, but it's much more like they keep them, how to say, not like a large scale, but like a dozens of chicken or like ducks. And it's just like on a small island of a land, I would say maybe not even half of hectare the size. It's not really contributing too much on like large scale cattle, I would say. I think what's also really interesting is that other colleagues now project did research on more on, on livestock and animal husbandry. And uh, what's really interesting is that when the vanilla prices were so high, there was locally a lot of demand for meat and for um, also for eggs. Climatically, we were mentioning before that the west of Madagascar is more dry. Actually, cattle. Farming is much more common, like the large scale on, on ranging where they like keep them in, in larger um, groups. And then they actually kind of herd it over the mountains to the Sava region where the vanilla is grown and sold there for higher prices. So it's actually economically viable to move the cattle across several, probably hundreds of kilometers 
into the subregion and also for the eggs um, because the road kind of going from the capital Antananarivo to the Sava region is very bad in parts, dangerous for eggs, if that makes sense. There were actually eggs being flown over with the passenger airplane from the capital where they have uh, large scale uh, chicken farms um, into Sambava, into the, the capital of the Sava region, where there was all the vanilla driven egg demand, but not enough supply locally. So probably the, the only eggs flown around, I don't know, it must be a rare thing. Certainly a custard waiting to happen for all the pastry chefs listening. In preparation for this interview, I also wanted to get an idea of Madagascar's geography. And that mention between the capital and the Sava region is about 550 kilometers. That was roughly what it was told to me, but I couldn't find a way there. Google wouldn't tell me if it would be by bus or by train or by... The mapping obviously is very delayed in the statistics and the information that they have available, but how do people move around? If they're selling their vanilla, what is then the source or the traffic that happens after that? In terms of uh, vanilla selling, I would say the buyer always go to the region. I think it's rare that like a farmer travels directly and sells the vanilla um, in the capital or in the big city of the region. But it's more like the buyer goes in the field, either directly or there are also some kind of like intermediate persons. That's also something that is needed to be highlighted, that there are some intermediate, like they collect or buy directly this vanilla from the farmer and then they transfer it into the main city. I think in that respect, it's also really key to think about the properties of vanilla because vanilla is extremely high ratio between weight and price especially if it's cured already. And there's also curing happens kind of on all levels. It happens, some farmers do it themselves. Sometimes it happens in the village, some intermediates, which Andrew mentioned, they all might prepare it or it might actually happen with exporters. It might happen on all stages. And if it's already cured and dried, it's very lightweight. A harvest of a farmer can easily be transported just on the back, you know, the whole year's harvest if it's cured. Meaning that vanilla becomes an option in very remote places where there are no roads, where there's maybe no river, which can be used for, for boats, but where you actually have to walk to the villages. And there, vanilla can still work as a cash crop. Whereas if you have anything that is heavy, like cacao or coffee or pineapple or lychee or whatever, then it's just impossible to get it out to a market. I personally think. One of the main reasons why Northeastern Madagascar is so strong in vanilla farming and is still strong when the prices collapse is actually the fact that, you know, it's so remote in many of the villages that there's actually no other cash crops that can be brought to a market, even though the climate would, would be suitable. That's very interesting to hear. I want to be careful of my privilege in saying these things, but when I hear the benefits listed, it does sound like vanilla is helpful as a whole to the communities, but certainly there are some challenges. Do you see it that way? Does it seem like this is a good crop for the people? From my point of view, I would say that 
vanilla is a good crop for people on one hand because it generates high income for the farmers. But for example, the security issue, I think that's just the main problem. But in general, I would say vanilla is benefiting farmers. The farmer doesn't always benefit if some kind of like bad conditions happens, like theft. And also they have been tricked by, let's say, a bad person pretending to be a trader. That kind of leads to a complete loss for the farmer. Let's say if they produce like 50 kilos of vanilla and then just like one night it's stolen, then everything is gone. And although these farmers, they spent one year on the labor from the pollination and the curation and so on, I think that's the main risk of the farmers. This is also really the reason why none of the farmers specializes purely on vanilla, because this is just too risky, not a strategy. So what farmers do is they try to be rice self-sufficient, trying to, to farm enough rice for their family, be it through the irrigated paddy rice or the shifting cultivation, and then to have the vanilla on top as, a, as an income source. Those that achieve, there are some that do achieve that, and they can then really use all the, the vanilla money for school, for, or for education, for house renovation, for solar panels, etc. Maybe a motorbike um, for those who do uh, very well. But those that do not manage to be rice self-sufficient, which is actually quite a lot of people, and those will also then need to buy rice with the cash from the vanilla. And those who really lose out are people who struggle to have productive agroforests of vanilla or might not have any vanilla at all. They suffered under the high prices. They suffered under the inflation locally. Everything got more expensive um, because, because there was money around. Those people were really also marginalized. Um, and then you can kind of get into a trap where farmers might not have the productive petty rice. They might only have little land and then they kind of rent land for shifting cultivation. And then there's the deal that half of the rice, half of the harvest goes to the landowner and only half the, the person who did the work, um, or the family who did the work keeps themselves. So then um, you never have time to actually start with your vanilla at all, even if you want to, even if the prices are high, you can't profit from it. Or you finally invest some time into vanilla and then by the time you have the first harvest three years later, the prices collapse. There is actually also in many villages, there are lots of people who lose out. But I would agree with Andre that, I mean, overall, it really has potential, especially if the theft and these fluctuating prices would be under control, kind of giving a more long-term perspective rather than this short money, quick money. Thank you both for those comments. It sounds like there's a fair amount of vulnerabilities as well. Are there any systems in place to, to stop those from happening? I mean, the having subsistence farming as well is some kind of insurance, not. But in terms of like state actions, there's really not much. Yikes. I hadn't realized that. We'll try to wrap up our conversation here. I would love to hear feedback from both of you 
on where you would like to end, what sort of things we might have missed or what the audience, which are consumers and also food manufacturers who are purchasing vanilla might make decisions that could impact directly or just be smarter about those decisions. Yes, I think one thing to, to think about from a you know manufacturer's perspective, I think, would be, of course, now coming with the subject again, would be the land history, not to focus on purchasing vanilla from such open land-derived agroforests, which were shifting cultivation land before. That would be one thing. I think the second thing would really be to ensure that more money within the value chain actually stays with the farmers. If the exporters keep a fixed amount of $30, per kilo, then if the price is really high, the farmer still gets a lot. But if the price is already low, then what is left for the farmers is even less. So I think it's tough to come up with like clear policies or clear um, approaches for that. But ensuring fair prices and also stable prices for farmers, I think this would be one way forward. For example, by introducing a minimum price that they say, we never buy below 35 euros, for example. Something that's becoming popular in a revised version of the cacao trade is to direct trade with farmers if possible. Is that something that is becoming available to communities in the northeastern region? From the conversation with some of our uh, farmers during our study, I would say the majority of them had this opinion that they would prefer to have like a direct connection between the buyers, the main buyers and them, and not like going through intermediates. I would say that would be a way forward, make some improvement on how benefiting the farmers, who is the main, main subject playing an important role on producing and on processing all those products. Taking care of the stakeholders involved, certainly. I think there was something mentioned that there's a, a really important distinguishing factor between natural and organic or natural and unnatural. Maybe if we can sort that out before we leave. I can definitely talk about the organic. And that's actually quite interesting because in Northeastern Madagascar, where we worked, all the vanilla is organic, factually. Like, you know, farmers don't use pesticides, farmers don't use uh, fertilizers. So the label that something is organic is kind of putting a label on something that is already organic. So I think if you buy vanilla from northeastern Madagascar that is not organic, you can be pretty sure it is organic. One of the big challenges, though, for those exporters who wish to, to certify their vanilla as organic is that, first of all, they have to kind of have at least some kind of more direct trade because if you have five middle traders in between don't know where it comes from, so you can't enforce any rules, be it organic or Rainforest Alliance or fair trade. But they also have the problem that sometimes farmers transport the vanilla in mosquito nets that were kind of impregnated to protect from malaria with insect-killing chemicals. Then when handling the vanilla or when transporting the vanilla, some of these pesticides might end up on the vanilla and then the vanilla is not organic anymore, even though the agroforest itself was actually organic. So that's actually one challenge they are having. In terms of natural vanilla, I would say natural is just when it, when it comes from the plant and non-natural is when it doesn't come from the plant. But I don't know what the food standards say about that. 
nor do I. I'm sure there is an existing definition of all of the potential additives that you could acquire to make it be like vanilla, but certainly there is no replicate. I'm very grateful to have had your time today. If you would just like to leave final thoughts on where we can either be following your future projects or to read something that you've recently published, I welcome you to leave that here. One thing I can say is that our project synthesis bringing together all the research from the diversity turn project will be published next week. Um, I can definitely share that with you um, and it would be one resource where you could all read a lot about uh, Andrews and my research. Excellent, thank you. And I will share the links and the Twitter profiles of both of you in the upcoming episode. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Bye-bye.